Welcome to another episode of The Zach Hiley Show. Today, I have the honor of being with Dr. Stephen Heron. So, Dr. Heron is the Vice Dean of Undergraduate Medical Education here at SKMC, and he is the Chair of Medical Education, and he is a Professor of Medicine here at Jefferson. He is also a practicing hepatologist and gastroenterologist. He grew up in New York City and studied math and history at Oberlin College, after which he spent a few years as a chef and then went to Jefferson for medical school. He went to Penn for internal medicine and back to Jefferson for gastroenterology and then a fellowship in hepatology, where he has stayed since. He has won multiple awards for teaching, including Internal Medicine Residency Teacher of the Year, which makes sense because he now runs medical education as the chair here at SKMC, and of course, he is the vice dean as well. And this is a potentially scary interview for me as well. Because you are the vice dean, because you have the chair, if I say anything wrong, you could kick me out with months left to graduate, correct? Well, not without due process. Not without due process, but there is a record here. But I guess I have control over the record. You do. I have no concerns about your... Well, thank you very much. And thank you so much for coming, Dr. Heron. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. So let's start out with getting into medicine because you have an interesting background. Before you got into medicine, before you became a hepatologist, a gastroenterologist, you were a chef. How did you go from being a chef to wanting to study medicine? Well, it's a story I've, I've told on a number of occasions, different venues. Uh, I never intended to do medicine. Um, my, my father was a physician. Uh, my, my wife at that time, before she was my wife, was uh, pursuing medicine at, at Oberlin and, and Ford and was a Jeff graduate as well. Uh, and um, I was going to be a professional chef. I did um, apprenticed at restaurants. I learned at my mother's knee to, to cook. I've always loved cooking. I loved to eat. Uh, and then I did apprentice work in summers. I grew up in New York City. So there was opportunities and I thought I was going to go into be a culinarian and have a, be an entrepreneur and a restaurateur. But it, uh, for a variety of reasons, it turned out not to be the right path for me. Uh, and uh, medicine was not far from me. Uh, my wife, Gail, was in school. She had the books. Uh, we were here in Philly. I applied and uh, took a Kaplan course and applied and lo and behold, uh, I got into Jefferson and uh, never looked back. It was a great choice for me. I'm just curious, what what was it in the chef world that, that pushed you away? Was it the weird hours? Because you worked late at night. Was it being in front of a fire all the time? Was it the Those, people you were around? Uh, you know, it's not, a, there's, there's aspects of the restaurant world which is not unlike medical training, yeah. internship. Uh, you're, uh, you're on, one of the people are off. Uh, I just found as though uh, preparing rich food for rich people was uh, the only tenable way to make a living mm. there. I didn't want to work in a big hotel. I was more interested in the boutique-y kind of uh, high-end cuisine, and it just it wasn't for me. There was no intellectual side to it. It was uh, There was a fair amount of alcohol. I thought it was a fairly misogynistic mm. environment, uh, and I felt as though I wanted to learn something more. Wow. So when did you, at what age did you decide, I want to be a doctor, I want to go into medicine? Uh, I guess I was about 25. 25. Yep. And did you have the cor- like the organic chemistry courses? I know you studied history and math. So did you did you have to take those courses as well? I did. I used to um I worked a job. I finished cleaning up lunch and I would walk up and I did courses at Penn to uh to to qualify. I had to take organic chemistry. I had to take uh, electricity and magnetism. Electricity think, and magnetism for med school, you need that? Back in the day. Really? Yeah, you had to have you had to have a full year of physics. Wow. 
That's interesting. And I was you were telling me earlier about this. Has the history of being a chef come in handy? And I've, I've heard about a story, a particularly good story, about a potluck, an organic chemistry course kind oh. of from... Yes. Yeah, was there, was there a story? Yeah, so uh, I was up at Penn taking my organic chemistry, and there was, we finished, it was, I didn't know what a post-bac was, but yeah. apparently I was in a group of post-bacs, and everybody was anxious about getting into med school, and uh, we took the course. I, I found it interesting. I mean, I found, as a, as a math major, I found organic chemistry to be interesting, pretty yeah. straightforward, just get all the units of calculus to cancel out and you were good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, there was supposed to be, yeah, we're going to have a little party at the end. So I went to uh, one of the, the pastry chefs. I was working at Lubbock Fun at the time. And I said, I want to make these, uh, you know, some petty fours. Yeah. So he made these amazing little cakes and we uh, piped benzene rings on each one and I brought them in. And everybody, you know, in the class was just chowing down. But the professor was a bit of a gourmand and he kind of tasted it and he looked back and he, he looked at me and said, Where'd you get these? And so I told him the story, and he was, yeah. So he kind of understood what it was. And he instantly gave you an A, correct? As, as, as I, soon I as he uh, ate that first benzene ring. I don't, I don't recall. <laughs> but was, apparently, I did well enough that I was able to get into med school. That's amazing. That's a great story. And, and uh, you're still passionate about cooking. I, I know you lovely send these lovely newsletters to us on Mondays or two, usually Mondays, correct? And you send us amazing recipes at the end. I've used a couple of them. Glad to hear it. It's, you know, it's, I lo- yes, I love to cook. It's fantastic. fantastic. And I'm sure it's a good respite as well from, from the medical world, you that's, know, to go that's home and my, cook. That's my solace. That's amazing. It is. So let's get into it. Okay. What is hepatology? Hepatology is the, uh, is the study and care of patients with liver disease. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a branch of gastroenterology. Uh, doing training in internal medicine followed by gastroenterology includes a certain amount of hepatologic training. But one can go on and uh, do what we call transplant hepatology, which is the care of people with advanced liver disease that often need transplants, but there's other other kinds of care that are provided to those individuals as well. Mm. And how did you get into hepatology, this transplant hepatology? Well, you know, I have this food background. Yeah. Uh, and in med school, I found the GI system to be very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and the physiology I was attracted to. And internal yeah. medicine training, I found the gastroenterology aspects to be the most fascinating. I was clearly, it was my direction. And then yeah. in my gastroenterology training, that's when I discovered hepatology, not really before. Yeah. Uh, and I had a great mentor and there was an aspect of the types of pathophysiology, the types of patients, the uh, the cognitive skills required, mm-hmm. the people that were in, I, I joined the National Society of the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease. And I sort of found my found my tribe. Found your people. Yeah. That's something I hear often. But let's let's start a little bit earlier. In med school, you said you knew you wanted to do gastroenterology in medical school. I knew I wanted to do internal medicine. Internal I think medicine. I think part Got of it. that was naivete cuz I, I didn't come from a pre-med thing. Yeah. I didn't really know what doctors did. Yeah. Uh, but I thought what they did is you see a patient, you examine, you get the little hammer, get the little stethoscope, <laughs> you talk, you make a diagnosis, and then you see him again. Yeah. And, I mean, that's medicine, right? Yeah. So, for me, it was the most, um, it, it, it resonated for, like, what the practice of medicine was. And as I went forward and when I began to do interviews for internal medicine residency, I really, it really solidified it for me. Because, you know, doing a differential diagnosis and yakking about it and 
going on and on and making rounds forever. I mean, people that are in surgical specialties are like, oh my God, I'm like getting nauseated. But for me, that was, that was what, that was what worked for me. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, so I'm, I'm applying into internal medicine and I love gastroenterology as well, funnily enough. So those are, so those are, these are, it's helpful for me. It's almost advice for me as I go forward. And was it a moment in internal medicine? Was it a certain patient? Was it a procedure you got to watch that made you say, okay, gastroenterology, this is the next step I want to take? I think there's, I think all trainees in internal medicine, many, yeah. like the hands-on, do an occasional procedure, tap a joint, place yeah. a line, yeah. get the A, get the a, the a line, yeah. you know, the blood gas. Yeah. And I, I had that, I had that uh, need and desire and positive feedback with that. And gastroenterology, of course, has procedures. It has mm-hmm. endoscopy and uh, upper endoscopy, colonoscopy, and more advanced procedures if you're interested. Yeah. So that was a, an added benefit. Um, but I found as I was in my training that, yes, the procedures were great. Uh, but what I really liked was the cognitive side. And actually, I, I flirted with the idea of functional bowel disease, irritable, mm-hmm. irritable bowel syndrome. I thought that was very interesting as far as the patient mix yeah. and the kinds of approaches one has to take. Uh, but then hepatol- I got the hepatology bug, and um, I'm, I'm still quite infected. Where, was this, where, was, where did you get the hepatology bug? Was it, again, just seeing these patients and, and having these experiences? Yeah. Yeah, so Jefferson was the first, uh, the first transplant program in the Delaware Valley. Mm-hmm. So even when I was a student, there was transplantation that was going on. Yeah. Uh, there was an aspect of, of the team, that is that you work with the surgeons, you work with the interventional radiologists, the pathologists. We mm-hmm. read a lot of our own biopsies with the pathologist. Mm-hmm. There was, there, we worked with um, uh, nurse practitioners and nurse coordinators um, and there were social workers, mm-hmm. nutritionists. There was this aspect of uh, team care, which I, I found and continue to find extremely attractive and I think really good for the patient. Yeah. What was fellowship like? The second, the transplant hepatology, is it, and it's a fellow, another fellowship or what is it? Now, I but see. as, as a, not only am I truly a grandfather, but I grandfathered <laughs> in. So, uh, in, in, when I was training, internal medicine was three years as it is now. Got it. Uh, and then gastroenterology and hepatology was two. It's now three additional years. Um, Plus, if you want to now do transplant hepatology, it's yeah. an additional year. That said, one can combine that three years of GI with one year of transplant hepatology at certain programs, many programs around the U.S., and do it all in three years. And we've, oh. we've trained quite a few fellows under that, that, that pathway, which was, by the way, partially developed at Jefferson. Wow. And what did you do? Did you do the, the two, so you did two plus two? I did three of, three of medicine, two yeah. of GI, and then I was done. Got it. And then I joined the faculty. Got it. Okay, I see. Very interesting, very interesting. And it's interesting because sometimes, you know, I speak to physicians. I speak to surgeons, and I was speaking to, uh, uh, for example, an internal medicine doctor the other day. And I always thought, you know, when you think of surgeons, I think surgeons are in the OR five days a week. I think that's what they do. I thought that's what they did when I first came into med school. And I thought, you know, uh, hospitalist doctors, they're in the hospital no matter what. Even if you're in an academic position like yourself, you're in the hospital six, seven days a week. I had no idea you could split up, you can decide uh, kind of what things you want to focus on more. So you made the decision, you know, the liver is my thing. The liver is what I want to focus on. How do you go about that throughout your career? Do you tell kind of your superiors, I don't want to do as much general gastroenterology, Mm. I want to focus on hepatology? Do you do more research that's only hepatology? How do you kind of, because I I hear all these professors and doctors and attendings say this, I'm just wondering how, as I go forward, maybe eventually, hopefully to be an attending one day, right? How do I actually 
decide and get to get into these places I want to be practicing the way I yeah, want to. Yeah, that's such a it's such a great question, uh, and there's no one way to answer that. Got I think it. that different institutions are different. Um, we're talking about academic medicine right now, so we're, for the time being, leave sort of private mm-hmm. practice behind. And most hepatology is within the academic yeah. environment. Um, I think it depends on where you end up and what you want to do. And one of the beauties of medicine in general, medicine writ large, including yeah. all the specialties, is there are so many opportunities. Got it. Uh, and I think you can forge your way looking at, uh, looking at what's available and what's needed and what your desires are. And sometimes you need to set limits. Uh, those that are highly ambitious and want to be in charge of everything you, or, or at a very prestigious institution may be required to go to the lab and, and, and do that. Or you may have to change institutions every several years to get those promotions, but you don't have to do it that way. Mm-hmm. You can find a place. What I've done is I've found a comfortable place. I've done things that have interest me. Obviously, you, you need to be productive and, and make a contribution to the institution and then things come your way and you and you pick up on them. So um, I was, so as the junior attending, when I was, when I was um, taking on the faculty in 1995, there was six of us. Mm. There's many more than that now. And I was the junior guy and they said, okay, you're going to teach the pathophysiology course. Somebody's got to do the teaching. I was like, fine, that's what I'll do. Yeah. I looked at what was there. I reworked a lot of, I didn't like the way it was done. I reworked it. I actually fired fired the chief of the division because he didn't have good evaluations. I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that. And then um, taught the course. And I found in that setting that I, it was thrilling. It was thrilling to, to teach, to be in front of the class, to work out how to ask questions, how to get people into the, into the material. So I, it was a niche that I found and it, it, it pleased me. So I pursued it. And then I, thankfully I had opportunities that came across and, um, you know, one thing leads to another. Is this where your passion for medical education came from? This first kind of experience. Oh yeah, it was. Uh, it was teaching, and it remains so. Yeah. Uh, that that is the the crystalline moment. That is, you know, the thing of great beauty. You know, in medical practice, is also that crystalline moment. Is that moment with the time you spend with your patient. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're doing surgery. You're not in the OR all the time, or or radiology with less patient contact, except for interventional or GI or whatever, that moment with that individual is, that's the golden time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can be in so many different specialties. So for me, that educational moment was the parallel that just, I just found it thrilling uh, and, and gave me real direction. And at that point, you have to make it a little bit of a decision though, right? Because you can go, you know, I want to be spend the most time in the clinical world. I want to be a hepatologist seven out of five days a week kind of thing, Right. But then there's also this medical education that's piquing your interest and you know what, I have this moment, I have this crystalline moment, and I feel like I'm also making an impact. The next question I have is, is how do you start to kind of decide between, or is it an equal split between being a practicing clinician and being a teacher? If you're lucky enough to be able to be supported to be a teacher, then you take advantage of it. And again, many different systems are different. One of the things we did when we created the new curriculum here at Jefferson was we changed the paradigm of how we reimburse the time for educators. Uh, rather than reimbursing their department, we reimbursed them um, independently mm-hmm. to allow them to have relief from their other responsibilities, be it raising money for the grants or seeing patients or being in the hospital. Uh, so I think mo- many academic physicians are looking for ways to find those various parts of their 
of their identity, but also being recognized for that effort in mm-hmm. a way that adds up to, you know, um, not spending all your time seeing patients. Seeing patients is is a wonderfully rewarding activity, but it's it's difficult mm-hmm. and it's energy consuming and it's emotional. And I think that doing that, as you say, seven days a yeah. week would really could lead to burnout. At least in, yeah. it would for me. I see. Uh, so th- that's why things like doing research, doing teaching, other administrative roles can be a wonderful addition to one's professional life and allow a really deep clinical involvement, but to the point where you have other aspects, other things that provide fulfillment uh, and in many ways avoid that that rut or that burnout that can that we hear so much about. Mm-hmm. And have you been in academic medicine your whole career? Have you ever done any private practice or academic medicine the whole time? Yeah. And this sounds like a key advantage of being in academic medicine. I mean, maybe, I'm not really sure. I don't know how these things work that well. It's one of the reasons I, I'm doing this whole podcast thing. Uh, but if you're a private practicing doctor, I guess it, it can vary vastly by field, right? But can you split your time up like that? Or, or I guess most of the time is going to be spent in the clinic or with patients, right? Yeah, I would say in private practice, it's it's pretty much practice. Yeah. There are other opportunities and also the reward. So, for instance, in gastroenterology, there are many individuals in practice who have a, an ownership stake in an endoscopy, an outpatient mm. endoscopy center. Mm. So there's there's revenue there. So there's there's and I'm I'm no expert. I'm you'll need someone else to get all the right <laughs> advice on yes. this. Uh, I don't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body, uh-huh. which is one of the reasons that I pursued academic medicine. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I got out of the restaurant business because yeah. I that was not. Yeah, I had to have that, and I didn't, or yeah. I wasn't interested in it. Uh, so within academic medicine, you can you can find those different um, uh, contributors to one's effort uh, and and one's remuneration. What is the best thing about being a hepatologist? It's a tough question. Everything. Everything. I think. <laughs> so you know, we were we were. I was just at a, the internal medicine yeah. event uh, where they where the students came and there were tables set up for different mm-hmm. specialties, and we got to talk with various oh, students. Nice. It was really interesting. I was sitting with my colleague, Dr. Lauren, David Lauren, uh-huh. uh, and what he said, I thought was really excellent. He said, the gastroenterologists are the happiest internists there are. And I, I, I must say, I don't disagree with that. And hepatologists are the happiest gastroenterologists. Ah. There's, there's a, to me, it's a common, first of all, the people that I work with, uh, both locally and nationally and internationally through, uh, through the societies I belong to, are just wonderful people. There's there's something about the phenotype. And I think people do get attracted to phenotypes. And mm-hmm. when you're training, when you're trying to make choices for what you're going to do with your career, you need to keep your eyes and your heart open and say, okay, these are my people. And mm-hmm. and and I think if you I think most people get that call. Yeah. Uh, so for me it was at hepatology and it's never gone away. Um that and the other thing that I like a lot about hepatology, besides the fact that you get to take care of people that are chronically ill, people that are acutely ill, people in the hospital, people outpatient, there's procedural, there's all this combined with their specialties. We're often taking care of people that are very ill and maybe have less access, less opportunity for medical care Mm. uh, because of the nature of some hepatologic diseases. And I find that many hepatologists not only don't want to avoid that, they embrace it actively. So there's a sort of a social consciousness, and I want to overstate this, but in my experience, those kinds of individuals are attracted to hepatology. Mm. And this almost comes back to the fir- one of the first reasons you went into medicine and left the restaurant business in the first place, right? Yeah, I, I, I guess you could say that. Um, 
Sure. I, I don't want to give by the, your initial I, don't, I don't want yeah. to give the impression that all that, restaurants that, I'm, are... that well or 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 that you know I'm I I contribute all my time yeah. and I'm some sort of a saint. Yeah. Um but there is an aspect of uh hepatologic care which uh that must uh, note and react to those social determinants of health. Got it. And you and and I'm just wondering the background to this is maybe just because the pathology around the liver that's involved, like for example, alcohol abuse. Yes. So uh, viral hepatitis yeah. uh, can be transmitted through parenteral drug use, yeah. and alcoholism uh, it leads to liver disease in great numbers. So yes, there that is part of it. So let's talk about something slightly different. As the chair of medical education and the vice dean of undergraduate medication. You're the head, essentially, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, of running kind of the curriculum and the way kind of we as medical students learn at Jefferson. How did you come into this position? How do you get there? <laughs> if I'm really passionate about medical yeah. education, which I think is really cool just personally, but how do you how do you go through it? Because I because it seems like a mist to me, honestly. I think I know the path to get an atten- to, to an attending. I think I see that. Okay, I, I get to, I match into residency, and then depending, I do a fellowship, and then I apply for a job. I get that. Yeah. But then kind of these vice deans and these chair positions and these associate chair, how do you get to these positions? Maybe you can talk specifically about medical education. Sure. Uh, well, let, let me talk. Let me start with the with the with the dean's position. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the deans are the administrators of the medical colleges. Yeah. A variety. There's um, academic affairs, which is curriculum, and um, and there's also student affairs, like Dr. Pohl's team, yeah. and uh, that that you probably know well. Uh, and then there's admissions. That's another sort of side. There's also graduate medical education or residencies. Mm-hmm. So th- those are those are also positions within the dean's office. Yeah. Uh, my own path, I mean, is probably, is probably for every person. There's, you've seen one path, you've seen one path. Yeah. So by getting a, a leg into the teaching environment, when I first started through the story I told earlier, yeah. uh, I apparently did well enough that I was asked to take on a course. Uh, and I ran that course for a number of years until I handed it off to the good Dr. Vade. Mm. Uh, and then, um, the Dean charged us as a team to to revise the curriculum and make it more modern and more um, active learning and less lecture based, uh, more uh, focused on the jobs that physicians will need to be do- doing in the future. Yeah, uh, and that and that's uh, how I've been spending my time. Wow. So I think it's a matter of interest. It's a matter of grabbing opportunities. It's a matter of performing those opportunities. And I think it's a ma- it's serendipity. Yeah. How much time, could you go over an average week for me? Like how much time is spent in clinical duties versus how much time is spent in doing kind of this this dean position? Yeah. Well, right now um, I'm officially 30% clinical. Uh, those numbers are kind of meaningless uh, in certain <laughs> ways. Um, and also we have our uh, accreditation, our every eight-year accreditation vision coming up in just a few months. So oh, boy. I'm I'm spending a lot of time with that as as we speak. <laughs> so um, I I see when when things are in steady state, I I'll see office patients three sessions a week. I'll do endoscopy once a week, at least three days that are largely administrative for me. Yeah. Uh, my hepatologic partners and I have uh, several of them there, and they're amazing physicians. Uh, are doing they'll they'll be in the hospital. They'll make rounds in the hospital every day for a week. Uh, and they rotate that every fifth week. Uh, there's also call schedules to mm-hmm. be considered. Uh, and then they'll see uh, outpatients do endoscopies 
they probably do six or seven sessions a week. So it, it can be very busy clinically. And the hospital service, the hepatology service, for those that are lucky enough to be on the yellow service, mm -hmm. uh, they're very ill. There's many patients. You learn a ton on that service. It's, it's extremely rewarding. Uh, but but busy, but busy environment. Yeah, no, I can only imagine. So a clinical day, what's an average, and I know it can differentiate between a procedure day maybe and a, a rounding day or seeing patients day. Uh, could you give me an average day? And you can pick maybe one of those days. Sure. So on a, on a day that I'm seeing outpatients, uh, my first patient comes in at 8 o'clock. Yeah. I see patients till about noon. Uh, that Usually they're 15-minute appointments, yeah. half an hour for a new patient. Um, and then uh, usually I might have another session from one to five. Yep. Uh, there may be a conference from four to five. Huh. There may be endoscopy in the afternoon or one of the mornings. Um, the hospital rounds usually start a bit early. We meet with the house staff usually at eight or eight thirty, but there's pre rounds, and then then we're actually going from room to room and rounding or rounding as a team uh, in a conference room for hours. Yes. Uh, and then often, if you're lucky, those rounds end by midday, and then there's a lot of uh, charting to be done um, with in Epic. Yeah. Uh, answering calls, and there, there's, yeah. So I, it's hard to— I'd say because everything is so different. And that's the beauty of yeah. medicine in general. Yeah. Is that uh, there's all this variety, and so you, you don't really get in a rut. If anything, you have to find time to fit in all the things that need to be done. Yeah. Uh, but it's extremely interesting and extremely varied. And these 70%, the 70% of your schedule, could you give us an average day there? I'm sure that's it's equally probably varied as well, right? Well, uh, there's there's meetings uh, and there's, um, it's so varied. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's there's committees that need to be attended yeah. to. There's meetings that need to be done. There's um, administrative work to be done. I mean, it's hard to describe. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like I'm sitting around doing nothing, but no, I, somehow I that doesn't <laughs> seem to be the case. I don't believe you're doing nothing. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. Is there any, so what do you think has been the most surprising thing about being a dean of medical education? That's a great question. Um, I think the biggest surprise is that it's me ended up, that ended up doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and you, you talk about your path and what it's going to be. And, you know, before you know it, you're going to be in charge. Yeah. And that's amazing how that happens. Uh, it's, there's perseverance and, you know, there's one foot in front of the other and before you know it. So that's a little surprising. Yeah. I mean, it's like I've, I've said the same voice in my head that I've had and that you probably have. I'm not talking about saying I have voices. We yes. have to call the psychiatrist. <laughs> Reacting. But but there's but there's you know there's this sort of internal dialogue, and that voice has not changed for me. It's just that I've changed, and and as time goes by and you do more things, then you add them to that list that you introduced me with. It's yeah. not. So I think it's I think it's interest, um, passion, uh, eagerness to take things on, mm -hmm. uh, following through on just like you wouldn't be here. Yeah. Uh, following through, and then. Um, uh, picking up on opportunities where they're offered. Is there anything you didn't expect? Is there anything you're like, wait a second, I'm the dean, and this this is happening to me? Anything like that? No. Any I, fires I, you're being put have to put out or anything like that? Oh, there's plenty of those. <laughs> I, I think that um, one of the so being an administrator is one thing, yeah. but I think being a physician and then an administrator is something a little bit mm. different because as a physician, you're trained and you become used to like you know you just basically can. Do almost anything. Yeah. You know, the whatever it is, you know, somebody's got to figure out how to, you know, administer this or, or you know, how do we get this 
drug approved through this insurance. I mean, you find yourself doing things like no one ever taught me that, but I, we're, we're smart people. Yeah. We're well trained. We know we have to get an outcome. The, the buck stops there. And that's kind of physician training. Yeah. And I think then as administrator, that also is really helpful. It's just like, whatever it is, I don't yeah. care if it's moving the chairs or, or writing a new curriculum, it, it, it doesn't matter. It, it's, all, it's all on the list. And I think that that's a really helpful approach. You're talking you're getting reviewed by the LCME this in a couple months, correct? Or it's happening right now? They will be on campus in March. Oh, boy. Oh, jeez. So when you redesign a curriculum, is there like a checklist from them? How do you, because there's, of course, there's parts of that are unique to SKMC, right? There's things that are saying, you know, this is interesting. We think this is going to help the students. But then, of course, because, you know, we're, you're certifying people's MDs as doctors to treat people, there's a checklist, is it a checklist? Is it a, is it, did they come look at your courses? It's like, you know, listen, they need to know biochemistry. They need to know the anatomy of the brain, the area around the lungs, the heart, these kind of things. Or is it something less kind of codified as that? Um, I would say the LCME would say it's less codified, but yeah. the reality is, is that the number of requirements and not just curricular requirements, yeah. um, financial structure, reporting, uh, the authority of the dean, the um, uh, the adequacy of buildings and of classrooms, uh, the availability of financial aid services and counseling, the availability of stu- of career counseling, uh, plus all the curricular aspects. So yeah, there are certainly aspects of curriculum of content that are required. Uh, but that said, um, there is a fair amount of leeway in how one uh, delivers this content and how one assesses the success of of your program. Is the success just students' grades? Is the success their uh, their ratings in the clinical field? How, how is the success rated? Yeah, great question. Uh, we certainly we do um, look at your board performance, yeah. which is excellent at the school, by the way. So don't don't worry. <laughs> um, we we look at uh, match rates and where people match. Uh, but we also look at uh, student surveys, and you know a lot about those because we ask you to do those. We have official surveys from the American Association of Medical Colleges. We also have our own internal measures. We, we do look at academic performance and promotions. So there's a variety of both internal and external outcomes that we, um, that we analyze. Being involved in medical education for, what is it, 20, over 20 years now, 25 years. What's math? I can't do math. So over 20 years. It's yes, for sure, for sure. Definitely yeah. over 20 years. Yeah. Um, what have been your biggest learnings? What have been your biggest insights into kind of this whole medical education thing? If someone was just starting out, huh. maybe in the medical education field, what would you what would you tell them? What would you say? Listen, I've seen this. Don't do this. Listen, do this. Do problem-based learning. Well, <laughs> um, I, I would say listen to your constituents. And, and, and the biggest constituency is your student body. I see. Um, I, I'm really proud that... Uh, student voices are are expressed and, and heard. Uh, and we've made a lot of changes over the years based upon student input. That doesn't mean that we just do whatever the students ask us to do. Um, but there's been so much ranging from the liaison system to um, changing to pass-fail grades back in 2000 yeah. to um, uh, the kinds of uh, academic advising we offer uh, that uh, 
is just invaluable for us. What is the process of student feedback? If I say, you know, I hate my chemistry course, my biochemistry course, do you just say, okay, if we get 10 of these, we take down the course? How, how does that work? Well, no one hates biochemistry yes. at Jefferson. So <laughs> of course not. not. No, no, of course not. In, in some other school <laughs> in California. Yeah, sure. So uh, there's a lot of questionnaires. We Every course has to, the LCME does require that we evaluate every course and get student um feedback. And we, not only is the numbers, it's the comments. We also have a student liaison system where every block and thread of phase one has a liaison. Every clerkship has a liaison. Uh, and that individual is able to uh, f uh, funnel student concerns and has the ear of leadership, both of the clerkship and of the phase and of the of the curriculum in general. Mm. And, there, and there's indirect ways as well. I mean, we're every we have these small groups. I have a, a CSSG one small group, a group of ten students uh, that started at the beginning of medical school. We meet twelve times over the course of this year. We'll meet eight times next year, and we talk about a variety of issues. There's a curriculum, but there's also a hidden curriculum. Mm -hmm. where, so I think that most of us really care about what's going on, and uh, there's all kinds of ways to let that be known. And trust me, it is it is we hear we hear plenty. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure you do. Yeah. And how is the determination, this may be a silly question, but how is the determination made to have mandatory classes, mandatory in-person lectures versus online lectures? Because many of these social uh, uh, social factors of the, the this threat of learning that we have at SKMC are mandatory. And, it's, and it seems a lot of the, you know, biochemistry or uh, even certain other biology classes are, are not mandatory. They're online and we can watch them at our, our leisure. Why, where is this decision made and why is this decision made? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, medicine is a in-person, person-to-person. Remember I told you about that golden moment? Yeah, yeah. You can't learn that from Zoom or from or virtually. Uh, that you need, you need to experience it. So anything we're involving patient care, patient reviewing, simulation of those experiences really needs to be in person. Otherwise, we're not teaching you properly. Mm -hmm. There are schools that teach anatomy virtually. We think that the um, experience, the hands-on experience of dissection adds immeasurably to, to that educational experience and also the socialization of physicianhood. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important. Um, things like biochemistry or even hepatology, we offer those in person. I, for many, many students, that is the better way for them. They like to attend those uh, those uh, lectures, but others would prefer, prefer to see them later, listen to them in one and a half or double time. You don't go fast on double, do you? No, definitely yeah. not. Maybe um, 2.5 occasion, yeah. but no. <laughs> um, and, that's, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, that's not for everybody. Yeah. But, but I think there's certain things, especially when it's involving patients, yeah. that you... The, that's it's an in-person. Yeah, you're not going to be practicing virtually. You're going to be practicing with a person. This makes sense. And then specifically for the HSS, the humanities and social sciences, some of those are also mandatory in-person events as well. Is that because the same reasoning that kind of these are? Are we talking about patient panels? For hey, uh, I think some sometimes we would have, uh, for example, the the binary non-binary. That was a mandatory uh, lecture in person. Um, also. I think we've had, uh, I'm trying to think, HS, the patient panels, I understand, but maybe some of these things that are seem similarly didactic. Uh, yeah. I guess it's all didactic. It's probably the improper. No, 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 word, I, I, I'm with you. Um, you know, we discuss this. We have a, you know, a good leadership team, uh, and we really try to make it based 
not on the needs of the lecturer or uh, some external gestalt. Yes. We try to make it because we think that's what is best for the educational process. Got it. Okay. Um, the issues of gender and non-binary gender, um, these are issues that are difficult to teach. There's yeah. diff there's, there's, they're sensitive. Uh, they can be uh, triggering, uh, but they can be tremendously empowering. Yeah. Uh, and it, uh, when done well, and I hope that we're doing it better and better with each year, it can be uh, hugely educational, not just for the student body, but for the faculty. Mm -hmm. So that, so I think that that particular instance, um, we felt as though, based upon feedback in previous years, that having that level of engagement was really important for that for that particular set of materials. engagement. So back, so the back and forth kind of interaction. I see. Okay, that that makes much more sense to me. Okay. How have you seen medical education change throughout your career? I know, uh, for example, it seems to me, and this may be just because in my short knowledge, it seems the first like academic learning is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Some other schools, for example, have in-classroom for, I think, maybe only a year and a half, and then they start their clinical rotations. Nobody dictates this. I, I mean, there, the LCME says we have to have a certain number of weeks of instruction, mm -hmm. and we have that many and more. <laughs> um, the, They're actually watching, right? Yeah, they have corners. They, in the they probably do. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> um, so, well, I, I would like to think that the, those clear demarcations as to what's preclinical and what's clinical are 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 beginning to melt mm, somewhat. I see. So, when I was in med school, we didn't see patients. We didn't we didn't do case based learning. We didn't present medical information. We didn't learn any of that stuff until we got into the, the clinical years in year three. So I think that by making this phasic instead of by year, by bringing clinical medicine in very early and then also continuing some of the scientific education later, we're trying to make it more, um, if not homogeneous, at least um, um, merged mm -hmm. for those things to feed off each other in sort of a helical fashion. Yeah. Um, have we started the clinical stuff earlier? Yes. And part of that is to allow students to experience different clinical environments and specialties with enough time that they can make an informed career decision. Yeah. So that with it has made sense to move those dates up. And I think most schools are doing that or have done that. I see. So that's kind of the reasoning to get them more experience before they go into that. that and we could have just moved, you know, the clinical rotations up to April and then not change the curriculum. Mm. But that, that was one of the reasons that we wanted to sort of refashion the curriculum. I see. Okay, that, that, that makes more sense to me. And given, this is again a more general question and everyone's different, but given your close interaction with medical students, are there any general themes between that differentiate successful medical students? And it's, it's difficult because what do you mean by successful, right? Versus uh, unsuccessful medical students. So let's talk purely academically, purely kind of maybe the ones that struggle kind of keeping up with the coursework and keeping up with clinical duties. Uh, is there any things that you've seen across your career? Um, in my view, almost everyone that gets admitted to a medical school and certainly to our medical school is entirely capable of success and great success. Yeah. Um, and so I think part of it is um, other stuff. You know, do you really want to be doing this? Um, are there other things going on in your life that um, might be distracting? Are there even even positive things like are you a podcaster? <laughs> I've, not, I've not looked at your transcript. So, I mean, so there there can be distractions and there's different levels of engagement. And also there's probably some people that 
you know, it's good enough for them to just have, you know, to pass because they're interested in all kinds of aspects of their life and of medical practice. So it, it, I think you answered your own question by saying everybody's really different. Yeah. Uh, and those that really have, that really struggle, it's it's often not academic ability. Mm. So it's more like personal life issues that come into play. I see. Do many students drop out in the first year of medical school? No. The second year of medical school? No. Third year of medical school? No. I hope not the fourth year of medical no, school. No, no, no. You know, uh, there, the selection process is rigorous. Yeah. Um, and there are people that maybe will elect not to go on or not have success, but those are very, the numbers are very small. Got it. Because you know you hear about you hear about these things. Many people, and I I want I'm saying this because I want to eliminate this myth. Yep. Because I think medical school maybe I hope it's across the country, but I know here at SKMC it's very collaborative. Everyone's helpful. Everyone's trying to help you succeed. The hardest part really is, in my opinion, getting in. I think the hardest part is getting in, but once you're here, you all are so helpful and so nice to us and really want to see us succeed. And I didn't see, some people tell me, you know, a lot of people drop out, they can't handle the coursework, you're drinking from the fire hose, but it's really not true. I think I remember maybe one or two people dropping out for personal family reasons, but I can't think of a single person that just failed every test in a row and then just couldn't cut it and it was kicked out or anything like that. It'd be very, very, it's very unusual. And yeah. I think that's the, the case across the country. So yeah. COVID. Yeah. Did you see a change in student performance or kind of the general student's activity? Because it's also, we're in a new kind of, you're still kind of figuring out this curriculum, right? I mean, it, we're a couple years in now at this point, uh, but still COVID hits the curriculum. It's a real kind of test for you and your team. Most things move to Zoom. Did you see a change in the way kind of students were handling everything? Well, you know, we introduced a new curriculum in 2017. Yeah. Um, and we, so phase three was was new during the pandemic. And so that, it was, there was a lot of difficulties with the pandemic. We had to pull everybody out of the clinical environment. So people that were doing their clinical clerkships had to, they couldn't go into the hospital. Yeah. So clearly there was a lot of um, uh, reverse engineering that had to take place to make sure the students were able to uh, be trained be competent and to be able to graduate. And all our students graduated on time with with uh, with in proving competency, which is the requirement to graduate. Yeah. And they did well and they matched and, and they continue, continue to do well. Yeah. Uh, we had to uh, change the duration of some clerkships going forward is because of uh, we had to there were uh, because people were coming back in the clinical environment. Uh, there was some difficulty getting back to the in-person. So your question, I think, exemplifies that. You know, why do we have to do in-person? Uh, whereas that used to be that was sort of the default position. But as when everything goes virtual, then you need to sort of think about, okay, how how is this for me? And what does this do to my schedule? And uh, do I have to come in for that event? So there was, there was some of that anatomy. Uh, we had to do away with dissection. Uh, and we were using pro sections. That is, there were demonstrations. Uh, so we still had some hands-on. Uh, so there was a lot of changes that were made. I think we rolled with it well. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's, uh, I'm thankful to the educational staff and to the leadership for supporting everything that had to be done. Uh, and I'm glad that we're beginning to emerge from the pandemic. Me too. Did you see any things that actually worked better online that you said, you know what, listen, we saw this was working better online. Let's keep it online. Frankly, no. No. Um, I think that, first of all, we... So we do some meetings. We did a lot of meetings uh, virtually. And now we're doing some meetings that are hybrids. And for instance, the uh, liaison meetings for year one and year two. Mm. And hybrid meetings are, 
difficult. Uh, the logistics. We don't have your setup here. Uh, we, <laughs> you we feel try, free to borrow. Come try, over yeah. anytime. Um, so it's very hard to engage a, a crew that is outside and, the, and a part that's inside. And that's why I think that doing that virtual classroom environment is is not perfect because those that are at home are not going to have the same experience as those that are there. And those that are there are going to have their experience changed because they're trying to cater to those that are home. The hybrid experience, I think, is not a good is not a good one for meetings or for um, pedagogy. Um, so no, I, I think that uh, maybe our technical chops have gotten better. Maybe students are more comfortable with doing virtual interviews, you know, for residencies because there's so much of that going on. People might have ring lights they didn't have before. Uh, but no, I would I would uh, no. So nothing is better online. Nothing that comes to mind. Nothing that comes to mind. So was it hard to get students to come back into the clinic, back into kind of in-person teaching? Well, those are two different things. So in the clinic, no, mm. there was no difficulty. No I difficulty. think that, you know, um, you know, students really felt deprived of shadowing opportunities, mentoring, uh, even the scientific pursuits because of the lack of live interaction. Yeah. Uh, so that is a welcome recovery. There were less away electives allowed and available and none for a while. And that hopefully will open up as well. And so I think that's all good. Mm -hmm. um, as far as coming back to the classroom, yeah, there's been some pushback. Um, and but what we try to do and we always try to do is be, you know, provide the sort of metacognition as to why we're doing this and why we think it's important and, and hope that that's uh, taken in the spirit in which it's offered. Where do you see the future of your career? My career? Your career. Uh, I, it's a very cool studio. I might have to, I might have to take, <laughs> take a, it over. Take, yeah, well, not know about that, but uh, duplicate it perhaps. Um, as long I, as you let I, me graduate I, medical school, it's fine. It sounds like you're going to be fine. Anyway. Um, I think I do think a lot about that, Zach. I've, yeah. um, uh, I love to teach. Um, I like to practice. Uh, I do like the ability in administration to make a difference and make a contribution. All those things take time, and um, I have a life outside of here as well. So that all that balances is an ongoing negotiation in my own mind. And COVID, you know, really makes it real. There's mm. a re there's a reason there was the great resignation. People were thinking about what they're doing with their lives and what matters. And um, you know, I I have this much time. What am I going to do with it? And so all those are are real. And I, um, so. Um, Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Do you think the 70-30 split is optimal? Would you maybe go to 90-10? Or you don't know? I, I don't, well, I don't, so... And these are I, arbitrary numbers you told me They're before. arbitrary numbers, and it really depends on what the... I, I, I think that, you know, at, at this stage in my career, what I want, really want to do is make a contribution. I've always wanted yeah. to make a contribution. So the question is, what are you contributing to? Yeah. Am I contribute? I mean, education is really important to me, but one can do that in the clinical environment. And so, a combination of providing medical training in the clinical environment is is very attractive mm -hmm. to me. That makes a lot of sense. So, we're going to move on to more general questions now that I ask every doctor that comes in here. Okay. So, if I gave you one hundred million dollars tax free, it's in your account, and I'm going to give you four options. Option number one, you can continue doing exactly what you're doing, working full-time. Option number two, you switch to working part-time. Option number three, you switch careers and become not a professional chef because you quit that, but a professional podcaster. Or option D, you quit entirely, go live on a beach, hang out, do whatever you want. 
which option would you choose? I think I would continue to do what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, but understanding the freedom to um, consider my options and make choices that make sense for me going forward as as I age and my family mm -hmm. grows. And uh, so I, I'm sort of in, I think I'm, I sort of have the position. I'm not sure $100 million would make that big a difference. To yeah. Me. I mean, I'd love, I would buy a really nice stereo. A really nice stereo. Yeah. Yeah. What are your? This is this is not a, a question I ask everyone. Else. What are your? What do you? Uh, what do you do outside of uh, medicine? What are your? I know chef. Yeah, I love to cook. Um, uh, I read. I like music. Um, I, I have. I, I have a wonderful marriage. Yeah. I have kids. I have grandchildren. Congratulations. Um, thank you. <laughs> we do some traveling. We'd like yeah. to do more. Um, I just like. I, I love life. That's great, and. The reason I ask that question is because the career of medicine, the career of generally people being involved in the healthcare profession is not necessarily the easiest career, right? Especially residency, they tell me it's it's very hard. Uh, there are long hours and there's it's tough work at times. Do you have any advice for people entering the career of medicine, the career of potentially being a doctor in general? And this can be anything. This can be lifestyle. This can be career. This can be... Um, relationships. This could be like what books you want to read. This could be anything. Well, I would never presume to tell people what books to read. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, medicine is just a spectacular profession. Yeah. Uh, there's so many options and I would say embrace it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have training is difficult, uh, but so is, uh, so are a lot of careers. You know, you look at your friends that are uh, doing other professions, and they they pay their dues uh, in other ways, but they don't end up being physicians, yeah, right? True. So it's this remarkable opportunity to 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 make a difference. It's intellectually stimulating. There's there's manual dexterity if you want it. Uh, there's uh, the feeling of accomplishment and of of making a difference in people's lives. It's being being allowed into people's lives at moments of great stress and great happiness. Mm -hmm. It's just irreplaceable. It's just a wonderful career. I think everyone is doing this. If, if there's a lot there to love and it's, it's very likely you've made the right choice. Will there be bumps? Will you have to work hard? Yes. Uh, but the rewards are uh, myriad, uh, unlistable. If you were advising yourself as a first-year medical student, if you could go back and speak to Dr. Heron at uh, 20, was, you were 26 in your first year of med school? Yes. 26 in your first year of med school. What would you say? What I say, like to you, uh, good choice. Good choice. <laughs> good job. You're, you're stay in it. Stick in it. Yeah, I think that um, I think you need to um, follow your heart, and um, I think over. And, and this, I would I would say this. I'll say this to my kids. Um, if you can make a difference, if you can make a contribution. Yes, it's selfless, but it's also selfish because it's so um, empowering, enriching, and just ultimately human. So it's in medicine, that opportunity is there every single day to do something that has real meaning, real worth. Now, you said you would never tell people what books to read, but do you have any book recommendations? And then, and this can be anything from medicine to not medicine to anything. Some people have popular books are, people say, are House of God uh, when it's in the most popular one said here, but when breath becomes air, people say a lot mm. too. That was a great book. Um, I'm trying to think what else people. Those are the kind of the two most common ones I hear, but they say you know in regards to medicine. Um, so uh, you know I thought about this because you sent me the questions yeah. in advance. Thinking, okay, well what 
what would make me look really erudite. And, but I, you know, there's, you know, picking a book, a favorite book is like picking a favorite child. Yeah. One, one doesn't indulge in such things. At least publicly. Um, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a book that's made a difference to me over many years has been uh, Being There by Jersey Kaczynski. Being I don't know if you Being, Being, B-I-N-G, B-E-I-N-G by Jersey Kaczynski. It's also an amazing movie. And there's just, there's, there's, an, there's an absurdist. Jersey Kaczynski is a wonderful writer. It's a novel. It's short. Uh, and there's a wonderful um, acceptance of absurdity, which, which I find refreshing and, and deeply profound. Um, from a nonfiction standpoint, I was thinking about this earlier, uh, a book that I've read actually multiple times, uh, I'll admit, is um, the Lewis and Clark uh, book by Ambrose called um, uh, Undaunted Courage, uh, which which is this amazing. You think being a medical student is hard. Uh, these people, you know, work their way. They basically were, they had the Louisiana Purchase and they were, they went and explored. Uh, really remarkable um, bit of writing. That's not short. <laughs> How many pages am I going to be reading there? I Six, seven hundred, I think. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, uh, I, I read a lot of Maya Angelou, mm. which I think uh, is a wonderful, uh, uh, humbling uh, stories that make one realize that um, coming from privilege is not something that it can be counted on and that there's many that have not uh, and that I can't possibly understand. I can't really truly understand that. And, and literature is a way to try to get there, but that I found, I found those quite humbling. Those are great. I wrote them all down. Maybe the 700-page one I'll save for later, but those other two I'll... Into the cliff I'll, notes. I'll, I'll definitely, yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. definitely take the cliff do notes. Do they still do that, to cliff notes? Cliff notes, I, there's something called short form now that people use. Cliff notes is Wikipedia I usually use for the plot. I'm aging myself. Wikip no, Wikipedia is great plot. Cliff notes, there's still cliff notes, but it's not as popular anymore. It's gone downhill. Why pay for it if you don't have to? It's gone downhill, exactly, right? So do you have any closing words for people who are interested in hepatology, gastroenterology? Um, it's it's everything that you think it is and more. I Hepatology see. is a place of um, that that I found joy, fulfillment, um, challenge, and reward. Um, it it's it's the best. It's the best. It's the best. It's the best. Do you have any closing words for people who are interested in medical education? I think almost every medical student, if you ask them, were to say, what do you want to do when you're finished? You go, well, I want to practice and I want to teach. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and that's an impulse which I think comes because you've been taught. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's a phenotype of the medical student. And, and I was a medical student yeah. that, that wants to do that and wants to give that back. And so do it. Yeah. Um, and then you don't know where that road's going to lead you. Yeah. There are skills that can be obtained in education as far as the actual skills of adult learning, understanding the educational process, understanding presentation, understanding um, uh, effective graphics, um, uh, voice, training one's voice. Here mm -hmm. I am sort of stammering. No, 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 no. You're um, a great speaker. I think speaker. that there, there, those are things that are achievable. You may not be good at it at first, but those are learnable skills and that will allow you to make those contributions and to be that teacher. And whether or not it becomes a paid part of what you do or a big part of what you do, it doesn't matter. Uh, just just do it and it's extremely rewarding. We're going to jump down too many rabbit holes before the last question because they just popped up while you're saying that. What are, the, what are the graphics? How do you make better graphics for teaching people? 
Is it bullet points? I've heard greater than 30. This should be the text size. But the font size, yeah. yeah. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's all kinds of stuff uh, out there. It. I just prepared something not long ago for the GI fellows on this, and there's, um, there's a lot that can be said about it. it. Uh, PowerPoints, death by PowerPoint is a real thing, mm -hmm. uh, and there's ways to uh, be more engaging. Uh, basically, my own goal is that slide should have no words that's not always now. If you're doing a very expository, if I'm yeah. teaching about viral hepatitis, which I do yes. in, in year one, uh, then I, I need to use some words. Uh, but if I'm at at higher levels of uh, of more specialty interest or of other topics, one can just use um, something to trigger the things that need to be said, and I think it makes for a much more compelling presentation. Mm. My second little rabbit hole question is, is kind of a plug, uh, but it's not really a plug because I've had such I've had such a fantastic time here. I've had an amazing four years at SKMC, and I think it really was a dream come true. Jefferson was my top choice. I loved it from the second I came onto my interview day, and I've really had an absolutely fantastic time across the past four years. My question to you is, how have you cultivated this amazing experience for me? Uh, is there anything in particular that you can attribute to saying, you know what, this is why SKMC is so great. This is why we're so collaborative. This is why our students love us. This is why we have so many people staying for life at Jefferson and SKMC. Because really, I've had an absolutely, I couldn't dream of a better time in medical school. I really couldn't have. I just feel like I need to drop this mic. When you, <laughs> just like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I wish I could take credit for that, Zach. I think that there's some, there's uh, institutional culture is, is fleeting and difficult to grasp and to influence. Um, it's it's basically an institution is just made up of the people that are there, and because we have that reputation, I think we draw students that are interested in being in that environment and contributing to that environment. That's not the sole answer. I mean, I think we have to have a structure that allows that. But I give credit to the student body. Mm, wow, that's a great. I want to end there, but we have to end on the other one. <laughs> Do you have any? <laughs> Because it's true. And again, I'm not just saying this because I want to graduate medical school, which I really do want to graduate do, want medical to med school. I want to do medicine. I think I want to, I definitely, you know, sign it. When, do you sign, who signs the final thing to, that says, you know, you're an MD? Is that you? No, that's the dean. But, I do, dean. but I do announce your name as you cross the you stage. You do announce my name. Yeah. That was tough when I had to, I had to write the phonetic pronunciation. I didn't know. It's highly gurgle. So let me let me tell you let me let me tell you uh, what I did, and I'm going to keep doing it. Is I ask all the graduating seniors to just pick up their phone, record yeah. their name, and send it to me in a, in a Dropbox. That's perfect. And then you do your own you do your own uh, pronunciation symbols. It's so scary. Like what happens? Have you messed up names before? I did it for the first time this last year. I was very nervous, uh, but I, I think I, for the most part, I did pretty well. Yeah, I practiced. That's scary. Yeah. That's almost like the scary because then you have the parents watching. Sorry, I don't want to put any more pressure on you. Don't no, worry, I, you can mess up my name. I appreciate your um, understanding of that. I, it was of all the things that I had to do. I think that last year that was the one that gave me the most um, the most pause because this is a big moment, and and some people's names are you know, they're they're better said by someone who speaks native Hindi. Yeah. So I did the best I could to. Um, to replicate the sounds. Maybe you just take the recording and you're just like, but then it's not like <laughs> no. you, because you want no. the Dean saying, yeah, it's this whole, it's this whole thing. Okay, now we can get to it. Do you have any closing words in general? And these could be about anything whatsoever. This could be for medical students. This could be for people of the world. This could be to chefs, 
that are thinking about quitting and going into medicine. This could be anything. Yeah, I would I would say that um, for those that are pursuing medical education, yeah, yes, you have to work hard, but it's worth it. Yeah, it's a wonderful profession. It's a great choice, and there will be many rewards of all kinds uh, in recognition of your hard work and sort of delayed onset of adulthood. We all we all experience that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hearn. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I'll be looking forward to graduating hopefully in a couple of months. I look forward to it as well. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Hearn. Thanks.